You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Copy your Bible, your copy of the Scriptures if you have one, uh, to Jonah chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, and uh, I have enjoyed going through the book of Jonah. Uh, we, this is our fifth and final uh, sermon in the book of Jonah. Uh, but as we've been uh, going through this story, I've been reading a set of books I've wanted to read for quite a long time. I've been reading the Lord of the Rings books recently. Uh, and uh, I have enjoyed doing that. And I came across a quote that felt timely uh, as we come to the end of this story of Jonah this week, a quote from one of the characters in that story. And if you don't know the backstory of the Lord of the Rings, it's totally fine. It's a simple quote. Uh, But one of the characters in that book named Bilbo Baggins, uh, an unusual name, he has this nephew named Frodo. And uh, Bilbo, the uncle, the older uncle, he uh, has had this long trip that he went on with all these stories and tales. And he's been working or hoping to at least work with his nephew Frodo to be able to write his story, to to tell people in this fictional world uh, what happened. And this is in a fictional world where they don't have stories like we have, like with happily ever after endings and things like that. But there's this little dialogue that stuck out to me as I was reading that book this week where it went something like this. Bilbo, the uncle, said, what about helping me with my book and making a start on the next? Have you thought of an ending? And then Frodo, his nephew, says, yes, several, and all are dark and unpleasant. And then Bilbo says, oh, that won't do. Books ought to have good endings. How would this do? They all settle down and live together happily ever after. In his world, that's like a revelation to say something like that story. But even in that fictional world, this fictional character knows something that we relate to, that the best stories seem to, in, in our world at least, end happily ever after. At the end of stories, you come to where authors or storytellers or movie producers, they like to wrap things up. They like to tie up loose ends. If there's been things that are unresolved, uh, tensions that are still in the air, they like to to resolve those things and have a sense of completion, a sense of of fullness and finality to the story. Even in fictional worlds, they long for that, and we do in our world as well. And in the story of Jonah, if we would have ended where we ended last week, we'd have that. Like the, the story at the end of Jonah chapter 3, there's four chapters. We'll be in the last one today. The first three chapters, they end where you would think a story ends. Like Jonah, this prophet, had been told to go to Nineveh, this evil city. He'd been reluctant and run away, and God kindly but miraculously rescues him through this fish swallowing him and even spits him out. And he goes to Nineveh finally like he was supposed to, and he preaches to them. And hundreds of thousands of people repent. And believe in the God of Israel, the true God. That seems like how the story should end. That, that, that seems where, okay, period, exclamation point, end of the story. We can move on to another part of the Bible. But that is not where the story ends. I, I've been looking up, we showed a video last week of the story of Jonah for kids. And I looked at a lot of other videos of the story of Jonah where people are trying to make it kid-friendly. And almost every single one ends at the end of chapter 3. 
almost every single one ends with, yay, Nineveh repented, and they just totally leave off this weird final last chapter of the Bible that we get to look at today, that I get to try to preach today. They just, they just end where it feels like it should end to us. But the writer of the story, whether it was Jonah or somebody else, but definitely the Holy Spirit, didn't want the story to end there. They wanted us to have chapter 4. They want us to read it. And though it may feel unexpected, it may feel unres- it is unresolved, even when we get to the end of it today, even though it's going to be strange in some ways as we read it, it's important. And it's good for us. It's good for us to read and see what happened and see what the Lord may say to us through it this morning. So I'm going to read this for us. It's just 11 verses, but this is the end of the story. Jonah chapter 4. When we ended in Jonah chapter 3, God had, he had been saying that I'm going to destroy Nineveh if you don't repent. But the whole city repented and God relented. And then we pick up this. It's a surprising, it's a jolting uh, story if, you, if you've not heard it before. It starts like this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made a haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant. For, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Then it ends. This is the word of God. It, it, sometimes the word of God feels strange to us, unexpected to us, but it always comes from the Holy Spirit. It's inerrant. It is infallible. It is here on purpose to teach us, and I think that it will teach us. It's taught me much this week, and I'm confident it will teach us this morning. I'm going to break this uh, story, this end of the story, into a few sections to help us understand it and apply it. The, the chunk of this story, I'm going to call this, I'm going to call it the pitiful evangelist. The pitiful evangelist. 
Okay, so after, if you've been with us in the book of Jonah, you remember back in chapter 2, Jonah had been thrown overboard of this ship after he had been rebelling against God. And we read in chapter 2 him recounting this poetically about how he had sunk down in the Mediterranean Sea. He had sunk and sunk and got more desperate and more desperate and his situation was getting worse and worse before God finally intervened. He sunk into the sea. Now we see him in the desert. In chapter 4, and he's not sinking into the sand, but we do see him sinking down, down, down again. Sinking deeper into anger, deeper into despair. We read about, we'll look at how he gets deeper into despair. We see Jonah sinking again. And the prominent trait that is on the surface during this chapter is anger. Jonah's anger. And we see his, first we see his anger over the city, over the city of Nineveh and what God decided to do and relenting of this disaster, choosing to not destroy the city. We see that this makes Jonah angry. It says that explicitly in verse 1 that Jonah was angry. And then in verse 4, when God kindly at first asks him, we see him describe Jonah as angry. He says, do you do well to be angry? Like that's the trait that is on the surface most of Jonah's anger. And he's angry, not just like trivial, small little anger, like a flash-in-the-pan anger, like I'm going to get over it. But he's angry enough that he wants to die. Angry enough that he asks God to let him die, we see in verse 3. And so this moves him, even if his heart is in the wrong place, it moves him to pray to God, to talk to him, to express this to him, to let him know, I want to die and I am ticked off. I am angry that you would spare this city, that you would show mercy to them, that you would relent of this disaster that you said you were going to to bring upon this city. And the question that should ring in our heads, I hope, is why is he angry? what, What on earth? Like, why is he angry about this, that God would relent of this disaster, that God would choose to not destroy the city? Shouldn't his heart be glad? Shouldn't it rejoice? But I think we can see a few reasons here why he got so angry. Did you see how the author started? It said that it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Some of yours may translate that a little bit different. The idea here, when we're starting this last strange chapter, is when it says it displeased him exceedingly, it's this idea that this seemed wrong to him. This seemed evil even to him, that God would not destroy these wicked people. That seemed wrong. That, that did not fit in Jonah's brain, that God would look upon hundreds of thousands of wicked, evil people, and that he would relent, that, that he would show mercy and kindness. It seemed wrong to him, exceedingly wrong to him, even evil to him in some ways. And he's confused and he's expressing this to God, and we know he's thought this even from the beginning. He tells God, this is what I said back when I was back home, when you told me this the first time. This didn't seem right to me. That you would want to do this. That, that you would want to relent upon the, of the disaster that should be coming upon the city. And I still think it now, now that you've done it. Like it seems wrong to me. And the, the reasons it seems wrong to him, I, I think would be to one, I think foremost you see here is that I think Jonah thinks they are undeserving of God's pity. Undeserving of God's mercy. Jonah quotes Exodus chapter 34. Uh, to God. He quotes God's word back to him when he says that I knew you're a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
He's known all along that those things are true about God. That those are words God said about himself long ago to Moses at Mount Sinai. He had said, I'm gracious and merciful and slow to anger, and I abound in steadfast love. I relent from disaster. I forgive sin. God had said that about himself. And we could get up on our high horse if we want to as prideful human beings and think, Jonah, you are a moron. Like, you are a prideful, selfish, like, you you do not get it. God has said these things about himself, and you're mad at him for doing these things, for showing mercy. I would encourage us, before we get too high up on our high horse, to read the rest of what God said in Exodus 34. And I think we have this up on the screen. So this is the, the text Jonah's quoting to God about himself. These are things that God had said about himself And the beginning was what we have recorded here in Jonah 4. God had said long before, back to Moses, he had said about himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, comma, but. And then he had also said this. He said, but who, again speaking of himself, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God had said that about himself also. He had said, yes, I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I'm, I'm willing to extend forgiveness. But when people sin, there is judgment that comes. I don't just turn a blind eye to it. I don't just turn my head away. I see it, I hate it, I will punish it. And Jonah knew that about God, too. And I think that was kicking around his head, too. As he has heard about the city of Nineveh, now that he's gone to it and seen it, he sees how wicked they are. He's, he's heard about how violent and awful they are, and now he's seen it firsthand. And he cannot understand why God doesn't come true on the last part of that verse and why he comes true on the beginning, where he's merciful to these people. I would just say how quick Jonah was to forget and how quick we can be to forget sometimes that all of us are undeserving of God's mercy. The Ninevites were undeserving of God's mercy. Jonah was undeserving of God's mercy. You are undeserving of God's mercy and I am undeserving of God's mercy. Every single one of us. And we can look at other people and think they're so undeserving. How could you ever show mercy to them? And we should look right back in the mirror at ourselves and think, I am undeserving. Like, how could God show mercy to me? So Jonah was right that they are undeserving, but he lets that fuel anger because he forgets he's undeserving of God's mercy. So he he thought that they were undeserving, but I don't know if you've thought about this before either. Part of why I think Jonah was mad about God relenting is that he thought the Ninevites were unsafe also. This is a huge city that's the capital of a powerful nation that is imposing that is strong that is menacing to people and they are not that far in the world from israel it's not out of their reach for them to come just destroy israel and jonah knows this and he is hoping i think practically speaking that god will judge these people so that we're off the hook for a while that we have one less threat we have one less person or nation that could take us over jonah knows this that they're not safe and if god is now relenting on these people they're still our enemies they still want our land they still want our territory they could still come destroy us and do you know what i don't know if you know history they did 
like not way long after this, just a few generations after this, they do. Like they come and they take over the northern kingdom of Israel. They take over the city of Samaria. They, they, they are imposing people, and Jonah knows this, and he thinks, why would you do this, God? Like, why would you let these dangerous, unsafe, strong people who hate us, let them off the hook and let them keep living, let them keep getting bigger and stronger? Why would you do this? And his anger about the city becomes ironic and irrational. He's asking, and his despair of life becomes ironic and irrational. He, he's asking about this. He's asking the God who spared him by sending a fish to swallow him, to keep him alive. He's asking him now to let him die. And he is, this God he knows is slow to anger. He's even saying that to him. He's talking to as a person who's quick to anger. It is ironic. It's irrational. And we see God say, do you do well to be angry? Jonah, but that doesn't seem to have its intended effect to kind of shake Jonah out of his anger. So more happens, more strange things proceed uh, as we get deeper into this last part of the story. We see Jonah sink even deeper into anger. And this time it's not going to be anger over a city, it's anger over a plant. Anger over a plant. So what happens here? So Jonah goes out of the city, verse 5. He, we know he went one day's worth into it of a, day, of a city that's three days' trip wide. And then it seems like he stopped preaching after day one. But note that he goes to the east side of the city. So he goes either through it or around it. But he gave up preaching, I think, on day one. And it, he makes it all the way to the other side of the city, to the east side of the city. And he sets up this little booth. How he had the materials to do it, I have no idea. But he made up a little booth, like a little makeshift kind of shelter, tent thing, to stay there and to see what's going to happen to this city. He had told them it's going to be 40 days and God will destroy you if you don't repent. And he's maybe a couple days into that, I'm guessing. And he goes on to the other side of the city to set up shop to see what is going to happen. Kind of like maybe some of us staked out seats on fireworks night at the village. We, we get somewhere early and we wait so we can have a view of what's going to happen. I think Jonah was wanting to see fire and brimstone come down upon this city that somehow God would change his mind. And God does something really, it feels strange and bizarre to me, but this is how God did it. And it, it was to teach Jonah a lesson and to teach us a lesson. You see that God appoints a few different things. It starts in verse 6. It says that God appointed a plant so Al, we don't know where exactly Jonah is, but he's east of the city. And God appoints this plant to grow up right next to him somehow, miraculously, right? He, he caused this plant to grow up, and it's tall enough around him that it's giving him shade from the sun. And just for a moment, this man who's been exceedingly sad and mad and displeased, the author says he becomes exceedingly glad for the shade that it gives. So God appointed this plant. But then verse 7 says that the next morning, as morning's approaching, God appoints a worm to attack the plant. So this plant that's been there less than a day, God now sends some sort of worm to start eating the thing up, and it withers. It, as quick as it pops up, this thing eats it, and it shrivels up and dies, so no more shade for Jonah. 
And then God, if that's not enough, God in verse 8, it says God appoints a scorching east wind. I don't even know what that feels like, but that sounds very unpleasant. A scorching east wind out in the desert. He, he whips this thing up just like he had whipped up the storms in chapter 1 on the Mediterranean. Now he does it again to Jonah here in the desert. And it, the sun then without the shade is beating down on Jonah's head. And it says that he is about to faint. Like he's coming to the point of fainting. And Jonah reacts by falling deeper into anger again, deeper into despair again. He asks, this time he asks twice in verse 8 and in verse 9, he asks that God would take his life. Like, I don't want to keep living anymore. Like, please just kill me. Like, I tried it jumping into the Mediterranean and you spared me. Please just mercifully end my life. And he's angry about a plant. He's angry toward God. He's angry toward God, but he is angry about a plant. How do we know it's about a plant? If you, if you look at verse 9, God asks him, he says, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Like, is that really what you're angry at me about, is this little plant? Like, you're that angry at me about a plant that you want me to kill you. And Jonah doesn't deny it. He confirms. He says, yes, I'm mad at you about this plant. I'm mad at you on behalf of this plant that you just put to death. Like, how dare you, God? Like, how, how could you do that? I'm angry enough I want to die because of this plant. And it just gets silly. It gets, like, irrational. It gets, maybe it's the sun and the, I, I don't know. But missionary endeavors can stretch people. We know that. They can challenge them into places they didn't think that they would go. And Jonah, I think, is there where he is irrationally getting angry at God about a plant. So he's angry over the city at God. He's angry over the plant at God. He is a pitiful evangelist at this point. What was God doing with this plant? Like, why did this happen? Why do we have record of it? What is going on with this plant? I would call this section the pityless evangelist. He was a pitiful evangelist, but now he's pityless. There's no pity within him. And I think that's what God is trying to drive home with this plant. Because on the surface of the start of chapter 4, it's just anger. John is angry, angry. I'm burning with anger. Just let me die. Anger is what's on the surface. But when God starts talking to him in verse 10 and 11, he doesn't talk about anger. He talks about pity. And that's what he asks him about. He gets down deeper into Jonah to say, your anger is on the surface, but it's coming from a lack of pity in your heart. And he does this, the way that he drives this home to Jonah and he does to us when we read it is by comparing Jonah's relationship with the plant and his, God's, relationship with Nineveh, okay? And, and he's wanting Jonah to see how silly it is that he can say, I'm mad on behalf of the plant. Like, how dare you destroy that plant? But God, you, have, like, you should have no mercy on this city. You should, you should have no pity upon the city. I'm justified to pity the plant. You should not ever have pitied this city and the people within it. And he, he does this by asking questions. A lot of times in the Bible, God teaches by asking questions. And God starts, though, with statements. He's, he's, it's talking first about Jonah's relationship with his plant. 
And he, he just states the obvious to them. He says, you pity this plant. Like, you obviously are standing up for it. You're mad for it because I killed it. You're, you're like its advocate, huh? And he says, you didn't labor for it. You didn't create this thing. You didn't plant a seed. <laughs> like, you didn't water this thing. Uh, I sent it. You didn't make it grow, like you didn't tend to it and like lovingly take care of it over months and put a lot of effort into it. I just made it grow almost instantly for you. You've known it a day, less than a day. You've known this plant, and I think God would maybe have said something like this, and it's a plant, a plant. And you are raging mad that I killed it. You're raging mad that it got destroyed. And I think he was in questions turning then to make John think about his relationship with Nineveh. God's relationship with Nineveh. And he wanted this to sink in to Jonah. I created these people. Like this plant, you had nothing to do with it being created. And you're standing up for it. You don't want disaster to come to I created these people. Like I made them. While you've been doing your thing in Israel and out on the Mediterranean, I have been having these people give birth. I have been sustaining their life. I have enabled them for better or worse. I've enabled them to become what they are. Like I have watched them. I've, I've sustained them as a civilization. I have tended to them. I've cared for them. You did nothing to care for this plant, and you don't want it to die. I have sustained these people for generations upon generations. And this is a plant that you are so angry that it's getting destroyed. And there are hundreds of thousands of human beings in this city. And you you don't want me to spare, you do want me to spare the plant. You don't want me to spare the city. Like, do you not get this, Jonah? Like, you are raging mad about a plant, and you have no care or pity upon fellow human beings. And God implies in his question, verse 11, that he does have pity upon Nineveh. It's, and it's not because they're wonderful and great. This book started by him saying that he sees their evil, that their evil has risen up to him. Like, he sees it, and he knows it, but they are still his creatures. As human beings, they still have the image of God within them. Although it's become twisted, and they've become very evil in their ways, they still are human beings who are worthy of God's pity, that God sees, that God does not delight in the idea of just destroying them. So he's contrasting Jonah's relationship with this plant with his, with Nineveh, and saying, Jonah, if you think that this plant should live and be spared, how much more should I think that this city should be spared? That if disaster should not come upon this plant, it should not come upon this city. I have pity upon it, even when you do not. This would have been revolutionary for Jewish people, a Jewish person like Jonah, to hear that God has pity on Gentiles. That God has compassion upon Gentiles. That, that new song that we learned, Give to Our God Immortal Praise, there's other verses to it. One of the other verses said a line like this, that God, it says that he saw the Gentiles dead in sin and felt his pity work within them. 
Like as God looked upon men of us, he saw the hundreds of thousands of people there, sinful as they were, he had pity upon them for what they had become, what they were becoming, for what was awaiting for them in judgment if he did not show mercy. God has pity for Nineveh in this story of Jonah. That's obvious. He has pity enough to send them Jonah. He has pity enough upon them to to want them to not be destroyed that he's willing to send his prophet and to go to great measures to, to see to it that they hear from Jonah, that they hear this offer that if they repent, God will relent. But God also has pity on us. God has pity on you. He has looked upon your life. He's looked upon our life collectively, and he pities us. We may see ourselves as polished, nice, good American people, like church-going people, but before we were believers, God looked upon us with pity, without exception. He looked upon us with pity, knowing that we were sinners, that we were rebelling against him. But he pitied us enough in our state, in our rebellion against him, that he sent us somebody better than Jonah. That he sent his son, Jesus. Like, who didn't come reluctantly to us saying, oh, I wish that God would destroy you, but I'm going to offer you forgiveness. Jesus gladly offers us forgiveness. Gladly calls us to repent and say, if you will turn from your sin, God will forgive you. And he will gladly forgive you. And I want him to forgive you. Like God in his pity has sent us Jesus. And Jonah went to this city. God, out of his pity, sent Jonah to this city. And he's just kind of reluctantly sending this message, sharing this message, only doing it partially. Jesus was sent to die for you. And he did. Jesus didn't come just to tell you things to do and call you to respond in certain ways. He came to become your sacrifice for sin. He came to take your sin that God sees. He came to take your sin upon himself and die in your place upon the cross. Something Jonah would never have been willing to do for these people. Jonah's sitting outside the city wanting it to get destroyed. And Jesus in his love came and said, I'll be destroyed for them. I will lay down my life for these people. That is how much God has pity upon us, and that is who he has sent to us. That is what happened. That Jesus took our sin upon himself so that it might be released from us. That we might be freed from the destruction that should be coming to us. That this disaster that should be coming on us in hell, can, we can be freed of it. So God has had pity on Nineveh in this story. He has had pity on us in our life. But we see in this story, Jonah, even though God is full of pity for these people, Jonah's void of it. And God wants him to see that. Like, I pity these people, Jonah. You don't. You don't even have an ounce of pity in your heart for these people that I made. So we see this pity-less evangelist. But I, I want to have a last section where we talk about what this text means for us. Because when we read this story, it's not just for us to learn some fun, neat, ancient history about Jonah. Some cool stories about a fish and a plant and some miracles that God did. God gave this story to us to confront us. He first gave this story to confront the Jews. Like because they had become so insulated and looked in upon themselves as the ones who were worthy of God's favor, worthy of God's mercy, that they had a hard time seeing how Gentiles could be recipients of God's mercy as well. 
And God, through the story of Jonah, was wanting to confront them and say, I pity the Gentiles, the worst of them. I pity them. And you ought to as well. And God will still say that to us today. He will call us, this is how I would summarize maybe the entire sermon, the entirety of chapter 4. He would call us to have pity on those he pitied. That God would say, if I pity these people, you ought to pity these people. If I have pity in my heart toward them, you ought to as well, and you ought to live as such. And so I would call this last section, pity-fueled evangelism. That, that we are called as God's people to share the pity that God has for unbelievers and even for other categories of people. If he has pity on them, we should have pity on them. If his heart is moved for them, our hearts should be moved for them, not hardened towards them and wanting them to be judged. So what is pity? Like what is that? We've talked about it a bit. What is pity? I think most of us know what that is, and it, it's kind of a, a a trait, a feeling that's hard to put into words. But I would say that it is a sense of compassion towards people. It's a sense of, uh, this is not academic or anything, but it's a sense of feeling sorry for them, feeling bad for them. But not in a cocky way where I think that I'm better than them and how dare they, they're just these awful people and I pity them like I'm better than them. But I feel sorry, genuinely, humbly sorry for them, both for their current state, like where the way they're living life now and the things that are coming upon them now. But also I pity them, I have compassion upon them for where their head is, for what the, the path that they're on, the place that it's leading them to the things that they're going to experience, the things that await them in the years ahead and eternity ahead. Pity is having a desire to see them be freed of those things. To not to revel in them wanting to stay in those things and be stuck in them, but wanting them to be free, wanting them to have life, wanting them to have peace and joy and security. That's what pity is. We should have pity on fellow human beings no matter who they are, for a few reasons. One is because God pities them. That's first and foremost. That if God, this is what he's saying to Jonah, if I pity people, you ought to pity them as well. If I'm the one who could crush them, who has a right to crush them, but I have pity on them, I have compassion upon them, if anybody has the right to show no pity, it's me. But I have pity upon them. If you're one of my people, you have pity upon them as well. So we should pity people because God does. But we should also pity other fellow human beings because we've been recipients of God's pity. There's no one in this room, including on this stage, who could say that we were never an object of God's pity. We, we like to use this phrase, oh, I don't need your pity. Like when we're, we're, we're saying, like, I got this, I'm good, I don't need your pity. None of us can say that to God. Every person in this room has been and still is in need of the pity of God. Like there's none of us who are these upstanding, virtuous, godly people that God looks at with praise. He looks at us with pity. And if we don't understand that, that that was our starting point, that God looked at us with pity and mercy and compassion for us in our brokenness, then we're not going to extend it to other people. Like if we forget that and think, I just started good with God. I, I came out of the womb pleasing him, and he's been happy with me ever since. You will not have pity on other people who are not. 
people who see their brokenness, people who know their sin. But when you remember you've been an object of God's pity, you will be quick to extend it to others. You'll be willing to see that they don't deserve your pity. They don't deserve God's pity. Pity isn't a thing they deserve per se, but you are glad to give it. You are glad to wish well to them, to to wish that they would be free of the condition that they are in. We should pity them because they are fellow human beings who have the image of God upon them. The worst of people in our world are still people who have the image of God upon them. People that God made, that God brought into existence, that God has sustained their life, that God has kept them alive till now, that God has pity upon them. Human beings, every human being, even the worst, even your enemies, are creatures of the highest order. Like there is nothing on this planet that is grander than a human being. That they are the pinnacle, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. We have become distorted and twisted, but we still have the image of God upon us. And there should be no human being in this entirety of this world that you look upon and forget that about. That you forget that they have the image of God upon them. That he looks upon them with value and pity. And that we are to as well. So this, this pity that we should have should be directed towards certain types of people, I would say. You see even in this text. This pity that we should have, this evangelistic pity, that this orientation to take the good news to them and have compassion upon them, I would say first should be directed towards our enemies. Do you have pity upon those that are your enemies? Or do you wish ill upon them? Like, do you wish that they would get what's coming to them? Do you wish that their life would get harder? Do you wish God's judgment to come upon them? Are you metaphorically sitting outside the city of their life just waiting for God to crush them? Or do you look upon them, even ones who have mistreated you, do you look upon them with pity saying, God, I want you to save them. Like, I want you to change them. Like, I want them to be with me in eternity with you. Do you have pity upon your enemies? These were enemies that God was sending Jonah to, saying, have pity upon them. And he would say the same to us, have pity upon those who are your enemies. God would call us, I think, in this text to have pity upon, I would say it this way, upon the young and the vulnerable. Did you notice how he talks about this city in verse 11? He calls it this great city that has more than 120,000 persons, he says, who do not know their right hand from their left. We don't know exactly what that means, but it seems to be this way that he was describing the young people of the city. Like you haven't arrived yet even to be able to, to know right from left and to be able to articulate that. That's who God seems to even have a particular, he's wanted Jonah to have a particular heartbeat for them. They say, at least have pity on the kids, Jonah. At least have pity. It's a weird ending to us, but on the cattle, like the things that you want this whole city to be destroyed, that's a bunch of collateral damage as well to things that aren't deserving of it. These cows aren't rebelling against me. But you're wanting to destroy them. Like, have pity on the smaller things, on the the vulnerable people, the powerless people. Have pity upon them. Some of us in this room, we need to learn to have pity upon the children in our life. 
that we don't look upon them with frustration and see them as annoyances or things. I just wish they would grow up and then I could deal with them when they have common sense and when they know they're right from their left and I, I just get frustrated with them. But we need to have pity upon those who are young. Pity upon the people who have disabilities or inabilities to understand things. We are called to have pity upon the weak and upon the vulnerable. We are called, I think, in this text to have pity upon people of different ethnicities and nations and sides. That is huge in the book of Jonah is that the Israelites, including Jonah, he's just one example of this, had gotten to this point where they had this prideful view of the nation of Israel as if they had arrived, they were the godly nation, they were the city on a hill, and everybody else around them were awful. Everybody else around them, other nations, other ethnicities, that in some sense they weren't deserving of the same respect, deserving of the same opportunities for repentance and forgiveness and grace. God, even though God had communicated otherwise to them. They had grown this, I would call it like a nationalistic pride in them as Jews. Where they were proud to be Jews and they looked down upon non-Jews. And God is saying that is blinding you where you don't even have pity upon people just because the language they speak because of the color of their skin or because of where they live. And God is trying to challenge them and say, open your eyes. These are fellow human beings. Like they live in different places. They might have different lines drawn on a map where they live in some different place, but they are fellow human beings who I pity, who I love, who I created. Do you not have pity upon them? And I would say lovingly but carefully, even on the week of our Independence Day, I think as Americans we need to be mindful to have respect and pity and loving pity, not arrogant pity upon people who are of different nationalities, different ethnicities whether they live uh, nearby nations or overseas, wherever they live, we need to have respect and pity and compassion upon people who are different from us. And our ultimate goal is not for them to become more American, but it's for them to become a person of God. And many of them already are. Many of them believe all over this nation. We ought to not view Americans as the pinnacle of godliness and, and uh, maturity, but we ought to, to have compassion upon people who are different from us. We ought to have pity upon them, but not in an arrogant way. But I think the clearest category of people we are called to have pity on, based on the book of Jonah, is those who do not believe. Those who are enemies of God's those who do not know our Savior, Jesus. This is the most forefront in the book of Jonah is that we would have pity upon them. Whether they live next door to you or whether they live halfway around the world, we ought to have pity on every person who does not know Christ. We need to have mindsets as Christians where we look at the people around us and if they are not united in Christ, we think about where they are headed. Like, even if they have a nice, pleasant life and we don't pity their current circumstances, do we ever take time in prayer or in just meditation of our heart to think where they're going to be a hundred years from now? Where they're going to be a thousand years from now? And do you pity them for that? Destruction hadn't come upon Nineveh yet. It was about to come. And 
God is trying to call forth pity and joy. Like, look what's about to come to these people. Like, how do you not have pity upon them? But we have people all around us, like in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our county, in our nation. We have people in this room like, who are on a path to destruction, who are on a path to God's judgment and on a path to hell. And we often are just like Jonah, sitting outside the city, just watching it happen. Just waiting for it to happen. We maybe said something once to them. We went a day's trip into the city, but then we abandoned that. And we're just passively waiting for God's judgment, essentially, to come to them. How dare we do that? Like, can our hearts not have pity upon the souls of the men and women and boys and girls around us that even live under our own roof to know their lives are headed to judgment? And I don't want that. I don't want that for them. I long for them to know forgiveness and eternal life. And I'm going to be praying for them. I'm going to be talking to them. I'm, I'm going to try to not be annoying, but I'm going to keep telling them about Jesus. And I'm going to keep telling them the good news and calling them to repent. That is what should fuel us is this pity for them of where they are headed. The destruction that is awaiting them, it ought to move us to compassion and pity that, that moves us into action. To talk to them, to pray for them, pray with them. We ought to not do that. We ought to not have evangelistic effort toward them that is arrogant, that is angry, that is cold like Jonah's was, but that is full of mercy, that is full of love for them, that is full of a humble pity for them, a loving pity for them, and a call for them to repent and to believe in our Savior Jesus. So how did Jonah respond to this? The story ends with a question mark. Did you notice that? It's one of the few books of the Bible that does that. We don't know, to be honest. We don't know how Jonah responded to this. I like to imagine, I, I think I have good reason to believe this, I like to imagine, even just because we actually have this story in the Bible and it had to get passed on somehow, I like to imagine that Jonah, that this was the turning point. Not where he became perfect and never struggled with these things again. But where he made the long journey back outside from Nineveh. He never saw the destruction come to Nineveh because God relented. And I like to think that he made his long journey back to Israel. And then maybe he stopped to try to find those sailors along the way uh, that were maybe back <laughs> at Joppa uh, on the coast and, and talked to them. Make sure he got the details right and whatnot and, and to tell them how sorry he was for how he had treated them. And that then he made it all the way back to Israel. And that he was willing to tell this story, like warts and all, failures and all. That he was willing to tell it to confront his fellow Jews to say, God has pity upon the nation. That God has pity upon these people. We ought to as well. I finally have learned that. And I'm grateful that we have this story. It says that we have it recorded for us. It says this story was left open-ended so that we might inject ourselves in it. So we can say, who do I lack pity toward? Who do I look down my nose at? Who do I just coldly react to? Because we may not become angry like Jonah because of a lack of pity, but our lack of pity often moves us to be inactive, to be passive to be complacent, to be detached from the unbelievers around us. And God would want us to see ourselves in Jonah. 
And he would want to call us to say, have pity upon those who I pity. Reach out to them. Tell them the good news. If I can save the city of Nineveh, I can save your son. If I can save the city of Nineveh, I can save the city of Winnipeg. If I can save the city of Nineveh, I can save the people of the Pei tribe that Chris and Evie are translating Jonah to right now, that they're reading the story. I can save anyone. Tell them the good news. Have pity upon them and tell them the good news. Amen. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing one last song.